went to the tomb and hung out there for three days and then came out. Or they would say that the resurrection was something that was staged, that the, the followers of Christ went in and, and stole the body and made off with it and Jesus is still buried somewhere. That's what our culture tells us today. And it's because, it's because our entire faith rests on the idea and the knowledge that our Savior not only suffered, died, was buried, and rose again, but he said that would happen. That before those events ever took place, our Savior said, listen, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, but then I'll rise again from the dead three days later, and then he pulled it off. That is the basis of our faith, and the proof for that is unsurmountable. And there's all kinds of uh, great books. Uh, I think the number one thing I think of is the book Case for Christ, where it was a, a journalist, and he wanted to disprove Christianity. And he thought, you know, all I have to do is find one thing wrong with their basis of faith or, or their base of Scripture, and he couldn't do it. And through his search to disprove uh, the people who were following Christ, he came to faith and a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we're looking at this, we're taking this month to say, okay, not only do we celebrate what happened, what we not only believe but know to have happened, but the fact that it was planned from the very beginning. It means, I I hope that if you're here, and for you, faith or uh, relationship with Jesus Christ, you, you just have some doubts and questions. You've heard me say this before, I'm glad that you're here. And I welcome your doubts and questions into this space. I welcome them into my office. I welcome them into my inbox, whatever it is. I I know that doubts and questions are very real. And so I believe that this series is very helpful for you as as you have those real doubts and questions. And for, for us who have faith, or we would believe that we have faith, we claim to have faith, this strengthens our faith to understand this. And for all of us, if we have that faith, we want to share it. We want to share it. You should want to share it. And so having this information like, hey, not only do I believe it happened, but here are the verses, here are, here are the written testimonies of what took place, strengthens your position and allows you to share your faith with others. So if you have a bulletin, if you're desiring to take notes this morning, you see we're in a, a few passages this morning. We're going to start in Isaiah and then look at the Gospel of Luke. So just real quick, Isaiah chapter 50 in verse 6. This is page 521 in your pew Bible, if you'd like to use that. Isaiah chapter 50. For you, you know, Bible trivia people, you just love this. Isaiah is the third largest book in the Bible. Isaiah had a very long ministry uh, before Jeremiah. We shared about Jeremiah a little bit a couple of times, a couple of weeks ago. But Isaiah, several different times, shares from the perspective of the servant. He just entitles it the servant. Many times in terms of prophecy, what God would have his prophets do, God would say, listen, I want you to act out or I want you to speak the part of someone. And what they were doing is they were saying, okay, here's what I'm acting out. Here's what I'm saying in reference to something God's going to do in the future. And four different times in Isaiah, Isaiah gives 
kind of a song or a, a message from the perspective of a servant. And that servant was going to be Jesus Christ. The amazing thing before we read this is this was written some 700 years before Jesus ever stepped on the scene. And yet God had a plan. Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 6 says this, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting because the sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint and I know I will not be put to shame. Amazing detail that Isaiah says. He says, listen, as the servant, I am going to allow, I'm going to permit these things to take place. There's been a lot of people throughout history, a lot of people throughout history that have suffered in one way or another, and we're going to detail some of the sufferings of our Savior. They've suffered in one way or another, and they endure it, but it wasn't like they willingly submitted to it. I certainly myself have never been in a position where I'm like, okay, I'm just willingly going to submit to the suffering. And yet, Christ, our Savior, did, and, and we'll see that in the Gospel of Luke. And that's just one of the many things. Again, in verse 6, I offered, as in, here it is, my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Incredible testimony, one of many in terms of our Savior's suffering. Our Savior's suffering. Well, so Isaiah proclaimed, the suffering of Christ was proclaimed by Isaiah. That's that first blank there if you're wanting to fill that in. But Isaiah wasn't the only one, and we're not going to look at everyone who prophesied in regards to Christ's suffering, but I am going to take you to what I believe is probably the most powerful, and that is in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, we're going to spend the rest of our time in this gospel, this account, Luke chapter 9. We're going to see that the suffering of Christ was proclaimed by Jesus. Jesus announced, I'm going to suffer before it ever took place. This is going to happen. Um, Luke is uh, an amazing gospel to read. They all are. I I love them all. Luke is very interesting because Luke was kind of a doctor. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. So you can read the Gospel of Luke, continue reading Acts, and it's like a continuous story of Christ's coming, His salvation work, and the start of the church. Very good read. But Luke was a doctor, and he was very um, analytical. Like He interviewed everyone that was present. He talked to the apostles. He talked to all these other people that were present, and then put it all together in this story, in this biography or this tale uh, recollection So he interviews all of these eyewitnesses, and then he gives us this account. In Luke chapter 9, this is about halfway through Christ's earthly ministry. Uh, He had been with the disciples probably about two years at this point. And in Luke chapter 9, we go to verse 21. This is page 733 in the Pew Bible, and then we'll be spending the rest of our time here in this gospel. So in Luke chapter 9, verse 21, it says, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. So he's about to tell them something. He says, listen, guys, don't go around saying this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man 
must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This is such a huge problem for people who want to discredit Easter, discredit the passion of our Christ, our Savior. Because the idea that someone would say, hey, listen, this is what's going to happen. By the way, I'm also matching up perfectly with what God has said all along in the Old Testament. Now I'm telling you this is going to happen, and then it happened. They have to figure out a way that, you know, he's lying or it didn't really happen. I mean, something's wrong. Because a Savior, a Savior that can predict his own death, burial, and resurrection and then pull it off, how can you deny it that? How can you disprove that? I, I think in this passage, you know, some of, the, some of the arguments are, well, listen, this was written after Christ, okay? This was written after Christ went through his death, burial, and resurrection. The apostles made this up. That's one of the arguments out there. And we start from faith. Everyone, everyone starts from faith in regards to something. So those who follow Christ, they start from faith in believing that God's Word is what it is. But it's very interesting to me, if you're going to argue that the, the apostles made this up, you'd have to also argue that Luke, Matthew, and Mark all got together and created the same story because they all recorded this. And then beyond that, beyond that, you have Matthew and Mark recording the fact that when Christ said these things, that the apostle Peter was so incensed by what Jesus was saying that he argued with Jesus. To me, the story is too, I don't know another word for it, ridiculous to make up. They, they say, okay, this is what Jesus said, and then our fellow apostle Peter argued with Jesus. You read Matthew and Mark's account, Peter says, pulls Jesus aside. He, says, he pulled Jesus aside, saying, Jesus, uh, this isn't real, a real good message to be giving right now. All right, we see you as being our deliverer, our Messiah. We want to see you as like an earthly king here on earth. We want to see that happen. And so it's not, it doesn't sell good, it doesn't sound good for you to tell people that you're going to suffer and die. So just maybe edit that out. And Jesus is like, listen, I have to do what my Father has planned for me to do. And Peter argues with him. And finally, Jesus has to look at Peter and say, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're not doing what my Father would will for me to do. Really harsh. Really harsh. This was really said. Christ really said this. I understand Peter's position. This happened right after the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, things are going great in the eyes of Peter. Hey, we just fed 5,000. There's thousands of people following you, Jesus. This is working out great. And then Jesus says, by the way, I'm going to suffer and die. And I'll rise again, though. So I understand what Peter was saying. But listen, you don't, you don't make this up. Christ himself said, I will suffer at the hands of the high priests and the elders. They are going to come against me. I will endure suffering. I will die. And I will rise again. He said this a year or a year and a half before it took place. So what was the suffering? It was proclaimed by Isaiah. It was proclaimed by Jesus. It was recorded by Luke. It was recorded by other authors as well, but we're just staying in the book of Luke. It was recorded by Luke, and we're turning to Luke chapter 22, 
page 747 in the Pew Bible, if you'd like to see that. I um, personally entirely dislike talking about my Savior's suffering. I don't like suffering really at all. I hurt very much for people when they're suffering. It, it, it doesn't take anything for me to cry at the thought of people suffering. I don't like it. And, and I really don't like studying these passages and being reminded of what I know in terms of our Savior's suffering. I force myself at times to watch uh, videos portraying Christ's death, burial, and resurrection because I need to realize what it cost. What I'm going to share with you today is something I need to realize, but understand, this isn't like my favorite thing. It's not my favorite thing. The, the suffering of Christ was, is recorded by Luke in, in Luke chapter 22, and I want to start in verse 63. I'm going to look at three different types of suffering that our, our Savior endured. Verse 63, if you remember last week, we talked about Christ's arrest. He was arrested in the garden, and then he was led to kind of a safe place where the guards could look over him and keep watch of him. And during that time, during the night, we read from verse 63 of Luke 22, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy who will hit you. And they said many other insulting things to him. How absolutely horrible to remember. This is a sinless, perfect person, a selfless person, arrested, taken to a place, and spends the night being beaten by soldiers. And not only that, but doing it mockingly. They, they put a hood over him or they blindfolded him and said, basically, since you're a prophet, why don't you prophesy which one of us is going to hit you next? And they would just take turns doing that. Tell us who's going to hit you now. Like poking fun and physically abusing him. This is um, one of two different times that Christ was beaten before the cross. See, this was right away. He went to several different interrogations throughout the night and into the next day. Uh, the second beating is when he was flogged with a Roman cat of nine tails just before, as Pilate's looking for a way to appease the crowd and, get, and really just get rid of Jesus. He was beaten again very severely, and that's when the crown of thorns was put upon his head and, and uh, other things were done. Terrible, terrible abuse. Abused on his way to the cross. And then, of course, his crucifixion. How horrible. So the suffering that our Savior endured was physical, and I, I think we know that. We don't like to think about that, but we know that. But I also want us to understand it was emotional. It was very emotional. You had these soldiers who were just making fun of him, mocking him. And then in, in Luke 23, verse 8, we see after some, some different, after he's been interrogated by different people, he's taken to King Herod. King Herod was uh, the king of the Jews at that time, uh, but he was appointed by Rome. So it wasn't like he was a friend of the Jews. He had to be a friend of Rome. Rome was the ultimate power. And so in Luke 23 and verse 8, Jesus is before Herod, and we read this. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. This is Herod being pleased at seeing Jesus. 
From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracles. So Herod's all excited. Jesus is going to come and do a miracle for Herod. And Herod just wanted to see it, you know, like a parlor trick or a magician. That's what Herod's excited about, to see Jesus. So in verse 9, he, being Herod, plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, then dressed him in an elegant robe and sent him back to Pilate. We need to understand or at least engage somewhat with the fact that our Savior wasn't just physically suffering, the emotional suffering. Here's the leader of the people whom he loved, the Jewish nation, and he's mocking him. And He's surrounded by soldiers who are mocking him. The religious leaders at that time were there speaking lies about him. Because what can you say about a perfect person? Lying. Understand the words that Luke is using. Venomently. I mean, Jesus is in a room surrounded by enemies who are just saying everything that would destroy you emotionally. That's the position Jesus is in. And he was in that position with the soldiers all night as they were beating him. Now he's in front of this religious leader and he is mocked at every opportunity. Spat upon, many uh, authors record. He endured this, the physical, the emotional suffering. But perhaps, and and I don't know because I can't really fathom any of it, but perhaps one of the hardest things he dealt with was the relational suffering. In Luke 23, verse 13, this is where Jesus comes back to Pilate. Jesus had gone to Pilate. Pilate sent him to Herod. Jesus comes back to Pilate. And we need to read this. Pilate called together. This is 23, 13. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. Understand what's going on here. The enemy, the Roman governor, who not one Jewish person liked in the entire city of Jerusalem, is looking at this crowd going, listen, he's done nothing wrong. You're telling me this. I've interviewed him. Herod's interviewed him. Listen, this man's done nothing wrong. The enemy is saying this. What does the Jewish people, what do the religious leaders say? With one voice they cried out, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. Three times, Pilate goes to the crowd and says, Listen, guys, there's nothing wrong with this man named Jesus. I can't find anything. The Romans crucified like anybody. They didn't care. They were very cruel and heartless, right? This was their motive. This is how they they ruled by fear. And here's Pilate saying, listen, guys, he's done nothing wrong. I see no reason 
to do anything, all right? And he's trying to find a way to let Jesus go. The enemy is trying to release him, but what, in, what does the crowd say in verse 21? But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, Pilate spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. With loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man, Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. I, I, there's so much of the story I can't imagine. But this relational suffering that Christ went through just before he came into Jerusalem and other times throughout his ministry, he wept over the people of Jerusalem. He loved them. He cherished them. He wanted them. At one time he says, O Jerusalem, crying out, how I long to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. He loved these people. And he's standing before them beaten, and the Roman governor is defending him, and his people want him dead. Relational suffering. Why? I think that it's fair for us to say, why, why would this happen? Why would a perfect person have to suffer? Once more, we know that Christ was God's son. Why would God plan for his son to suffer? That sounds like a very cruel God. And it comes down to this. There's, there is a cost for sin. There's a cost for sin. Sin separates us. Listen, you know this at a very basic level. When, when your child does something wrong, even when you don't know what it is, your child has done something wrong, you know that something's wrong in the relationship, right? They're not, they're not looking you in the eye or, or all of a sudden they're extremely quiet, or where did they go to? I mean, you know there's something wrong. It, you, parents with teenagers, you're like, okay, what's wrong? Uh, nothing. You know something's wrong. You know something's wrong. Something has happened. There has been something wrong that has happened, and therefore there's a separation in the relationship. Spouses, you know when something's wrong. Sometimes you go years with something wrong, in the marriage, sometimes it's just like you come home and, and you know. Okay, I, I don't know what I did, but I know something is wrong between us. Something has happened that has separated. We don't have the intimacy. So it's not unimaginable for us to know that our sin separates us from a perfect God. If our sin can separate us from unperfect people that we love, how much more does sin separate us from a perfect, holy God? And God knew that that separation existed. And he also knew that we couldn't bridge that gap. That an imperfect person could never do something to become perfect. So God said, listen, I'm going to make the way. The cost for your sin, Christ paid. Christ's suffering was the cost for your sin and for my sin. And if you don't want to take my word for it, the last passage we're going to look at 
happens after Christ's resurrection. It's Luke chapter 24. You may just have to turn one page. Luke 24, 740, page 749. Jesus is speaking to his apostles. This is after his resurrection. And he explains, why, why did I have to suffer? Jesus says, let me explain it to you. Let's look at verse 44. He said to them, no, verse 45, sorry. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sin will be preached in His name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. This is Jesus after the resurrection. And the disciples, they're still kind of like, okay, we remember you said you were going to rise the third day. Here you are. A beautiful story about the resurrection. Come back Easter Sunday. We're going we're gonna to celebrate together. We, but some of this we still don't understand. And, and it says, Jesus opened their mind to the Scriptures. He said, look, here in Isaiah, remember when Isaiah wrote these things? Remember when Jeremiah wrote these things? Remember when Daniel wrote these things? I did them. This has been God's plan. And it was for me to have to suffer. But it was also for repentance and forgiveness of sins could now be offered, could now be spread, could now be shared throughout all the nations, starting in Jerusalem. Jesus really, he's saying, I died so that everyone could hear the good news that they can have a relationship with their creator. That's what he told his apostles. And then he said, your job, to go out and tell to go out and talk about it, to go out and let people know. That was the plan. That was the amazing part. In terms of his plan, God's plan, he did plan for his son to suffer. His son willingly submitted to that suffering. And as ugly as it is, and as much as we don't like it, he did it willingly so that the cost for your sin and for my sin would be paid. So that a, a belief and a trust in that, that Jesus took care of it would allow you and me to have a relationship with our Creator. God does not want to be distant from you. God does not want to make it hard to relate to you. God wants you to know Him. And if you join me in prayer at this time, just everyone just taking a moment maybe to talk to their Creator, I might invite you to pray along with me a prayer of faith, just saying, you know what, right now, Lord, I desire a relationship with you. Would you pray this prayer with me? Dear Savior, I know that I am a sinner. I ask you to save me. I believe you paid the price for my sin. Be with me now. And for everyone else here, for everyone else here, I invite you to connect, even in an uncomfortable way, to the fact that your Savior suffered for you and to allow that to grow your relationship with Him.
He loved you that much. How can you love him this week? Lord, thank you so much for the gift of your son, for planning something unthinkable in terms of his suffering. Jesus, thank you for being willing to submit to that, to go through that. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to have a relationship with you. I pray this day that those who have opened their hearts to you would begin a wonderful journey of faith and that you would be glorified in all things. Lord, be present with us. Bless those who are seeking to do your will. In your name, amen.